Hello, and welcome to the Development Podcast, coming to you from the World Bank Group. I'm Paul Blake, alongside Raka Banerjee. Today, crypto. From trade to remittances, digital currencies to smart contracts, how digital technologies could revolutionize development. It's actually transforming finance. It's really a major fundamental change. We're picking apart the hope from the hype and analyzing the promises and pitfalls of crypto technologies. I mean, all of us need to be concerned about potential cyber attacks on our banks because that information is super private. All of that and more over the next few minutes. But first, let's go back to some basics on crypto. start the show by looking at key data related to that episode's topic. But this time, I think we need some key definitions. Yeah, and there are a lot of them. All of this from blockchain to cryptocurrency to smart contracts, what we can broadly call crypto technologies, it's all new. And it's complicated and it's developing fast. So let's try to wrap our head around it, at least broadly, in five minutes or so. And let's start with the big picture. What exactly is crypto? Is it the same as Bitcoin? No, it isn't. So Bitcoin is just one type of crypto technology, a cryptocurrency to be specific. But there are many other applications of crypto technologies, not just currencies. So let me back up. Crypto, as it is often called colloquially, is basically any technology based on something called the blockchain. And the name crypto itself is kind of a misnomer. Um, It comes from the fact that some of these technologies use similar mathematical formulas as encryption technologies, but that's a whole other story. So the bottom line is that crypto as we know it has more or less come to mean anything based on blockchain. So maybe a better term for all of this would be blockchain technologies, but that doesn't sound as cool. (laughs) Right, but blockchain, what's that? So this is a bit abstract, but bear with me. So think of blockchain as a database that is decentralized. So it's shared among many different computers. So rather than having one database that's centrally maintained, maybe by a bank or a government authority or some other trusted third party, this database, it's spread out across many different computers who work together to process and verify transactions. Okay, so that is kind of abstract, but but I think I'm following. Go on. So maybe the most well-known use of blockchain technology today is with cryptocurrencies. So blockchain is the technology that underpins cryptocurrencies. And many, if not most people, will have heard of Bitcoin, but that's just one cryptocurrency, and there are many others. So, So just to make sure I'm understanding, blockchain technology underpins cryptocurrencies. But there are other many different types of cryptocurrencies and and different types of crypto technologies. Yeah, exactly. So I I said it was complicated, right? So most of the cryptocurrencies you've heard of, (laughs) like uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum, I don't even know how to pronounce them, honestly, Dogecoin, (laughs) are public coins. So they're a little bit like when you go to an arcade and trade dollars for tokens to insert into the games. Those tokens, like these coins, are not issued by a government, and they're not backed by the full faith and credit of a government. So one big problem with these cryptocurrencies is volatility. They're risky, they're new, and markets aren't sure how to value them. So we're seeing these big price swings. And the desire to avoid this high level of risk has led to the creation of stable coins. So these are not issued by a government, but their value is linked to a government-backed currency or a basket of assets. And and one one other interesting type um, is called central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. 
So in short, these are cryptocurrencies issued by central banks with the full faith and credit of the associated government. So you know you can think of them like dollars or euros or yen or whatever, but with blockchain technology underpinning them. So these CBDCs are they are they real? Like are they out there in the wild? And and why don't I have any? <laughs> not not really. They're mostly in the research and development phase right now. So according to the Atlantic Council, which is tracking CBDCs in the wild, uh, as of mid-December, only nine countries have issued CBDCs. Um, interestingly, they found early uptake in the, in the Caribbean, with eight of the nine countries that have launched CBDC, CBDCs are located there. Uh, but many central banks across the world are currently exploring or looking into CBDCs, including the U.S. Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, the Kenyan Central Bank, the Brazilian Central Bank, many, many more. So that's that's pretty fascinating. Central banks are looking at how blockchain technologies can be used to improve the efficiency and security of fiat currencies that they're they're already managing. Yeah, exactly. But but this blockchain tech, it's it's much more than these virtual currencies, right? Like the crypto technologies blockchain technologies, it's bigger than that. Yeah, definitely. So yes, it, it is the technology, blockchain is the technology that underpins many different cryptocurrencies, but it's also being used for many other things that require transactions to be fast and secure, but also decentralized. So just for one example, you could see it being used for things like smart contracts that facilitate global trade or other business transactions, just not, not just payments. You could also see it used to facilitate cross-border remittance payments, not necessarily as the currency, but as the technology that secures and guarantees the transaction itself. And there's also the potential for it to be used to improve land registries or even the transparency around tracking aid transfers. A lot of this is still somewhat theoretical, but it's it's really interesting. Well, crypto tech or, or blockchain tech, whatever you want to call it, it is really fascinating. And it's clear it's so much more than just cryptocurrencies. Thank you so much for this little blockchain 101. how crypto technologies have the potential to boost international development work. Joining us now here in Washington, D.C. is Jean Pim. He's the World Bank's Global Director for Finance, Competitiveness and Innovation. Jean, thank you so much for being here. Let's start by trying to separate fact from fiction. There's a lot of hype around blockchain, but realistically, how do you see it benefiting international development? So I'm going to focus essentially on the financial sector, but for the financial sector, it's actually transforming finance. It's really a major fundamental change. So the example I give very often is when was the last time my kids use a $20 bill versus being able to send that money through their cell phone and, and digital money? So that obviously from a broader development perspective, blockchain can do much more. And we'll have example of trade or things like that. From a financial sector perspective, it's really transforming finance new players, new use of data, being able to much better understand where the customers, different way to assess credit risk. So it's really a fundamental change in ways that can provide lots of opportunities, also bring new risk. So the business that we all have in the financial sector is how do we manage risk, provide opportunity and make this available for the most excluded and really drive the financial inclusion objective using the new ways of providing finance. You mentioned some of the, the applications there. Cross-border payments is another. Remittances is one that, that pops to mind. It seems like a, a sector that's ripe for blockchain disruption. 
Um, it's relatively expensive to send money across borders right now. What what impact could blockchain technologies have on remittance payments? So you're right. so first we are going to talk about cross border remittances. You can have domestic remittances and already person to person payment. I was using the example of using your cell phone to send money instead of having to drive and give, give cash to someone. Now cross border payment is a very complicated uh, business where you have lots of intermediaries. So clearly there is a potential for disruption there. Uh, it's not going to come tomorrow. There are lots of challenges to, to, to be met, but I think this is something that can really change. So let's get back to the numbers. Cross-border remittances are around $500 billion. This is more than FDI and official development assistance combined. So it's very huge amount of money. And important for development. Very important for development. And at the moment, the fees to send money cross-border are on average 6%. The objective is to reduce that significantly. So the less intermediaries you have, the easier it is to do it, the more the costs are going to go down, the more transparency you could have also using the digital mechanism. So imagine you cut the cost of sending that by two. That means the beneficiary families are more to spend for their basic needs. Right, you've got more money going into their pockets directly if you're cutting down on the fees. Exactly. I mean, this is where it's going to change. So when you send $10, if you pay pay 6% versus 3%, then that's more for food, that's more for education, that's more for basic uh, services. And what we've seen also thanks to COVID is that remittances are also part of the resilience, ability to absorb shocks. So the more money they can put aside, the more they will be able to absorb shocks going forward. And how far are we right now from uh, bringing down those those fees? Is that is that happening right now? So, I, so first, this is part of the uh, uh, sustainable development goals. We've seen a decrease in the fees. It's I mean, I mentioned six percent on average. So, what you need to look at corridors, what we call remittance corridors, and and the fees are going down. So, there are different reasons why they are going down. One of it is to bring more competition. So the more players you have, the more competition you have, the more transparency you can also have. And that's where the digital comes in, because one of the fundamental change brought by digital finance is the ability to bring new players. So again, an example. A couple of years ago, the only way you could send remittance was through your banks. If now you can go to other service providers, then they will be in more competition, and therefore you will bring the cost down. The other part is more transparency. Because when you know that if you go to one place versus the other, it's going to cost you less, then you will go towards where you have the most benefit. And this is where digital can also provide more incentive and facilitate somehow the competition from the customer perspective. And then one of the elements that you see on cross-border payment is integrity. So we we make that concern on anonymity with the uh, crypto assets, but there are also benefits in the sense that you can trace the flow of money much more easily because it's registered somewhere, there is more integrity to the data. So uh, as everything in finance, you have a plus and you have a minus, and part of it is to maximize the plus and managing the risk related to the minus. Got it. And another another area that could potentially benefit from blockchain technologies is trade, right? Could you talk a little bit about uh, the trade challenges that blockchain could help with? So when we think about merchandise trade, we tend to think about the physical movement of container. And we see at the moment with all the supply chain discussion, that's actually pretty complicated. But there is also a flow of information and underlying payment. So when you look at custom clearance, the number of stakeholders that are to come together so that there can be proper and effective custom clearance. So you have uh, 20 to 30 different parties, 200 bits of data. I don't know many documents, more than 40. So the benefit of digital is that you can bring all of this together in one place and facilitate the exchange of information. And sometimes people are able to directly access the information. So a lot of work has been done to automate the flow of information for trade. 
But essentially, the centralized solution have been at the port level or one single window. That's what we call single window for the ports. Now, the next element is the exchange of information between countries because the, mo the easiest it is to facilitate that exchange of information and the integrity of the information. And that's where blockchain and data ledgers come in. You know the information is there. You know that it cannot be changed uh, easily and there is control on who has access. Then you can have elements of trade documentation and the portfolio about the trade that makes it much easier to do custom declaration and custom clearance. So we need to get to that next level and, and everybody working on that. But that's a very... Uh, interesting uh, example of the potential to use digital to really facilitate cross-border trade and with a level of uh, security and integrity that can really make a big difference. I want to talk to you about cryptocurrencies. Uh, interest in them has obviously exploded here in the last few years. You can hardly turn on the business news in the morning and, and without hearing about them. Um, yet, you know, I can't go down to the cafe and buy a coffee very easily uh, with them. How, how do cryptocurrencies factor into to international development? So, uh, I mean, in, in most countries, naturally, you can now buy a coffee with your cell phone. Now, you should be able to do that in a way that is much easier than uh, used to be the case a couple of years ago. And we're actually seeing this kind of development also uh, in emerging market and developing economies. So that change is coming. And uh, at one moment, um, emerging markets were actually providing more innovation uh, than you may have seen in advanced economy. And I think that's the part also where there is such a need and also new providers being able to come into the system that you are seeing this kind of innovation. So that's the first element. The second element is that the crypto asset world is actually a pretty complex one. So it goes from Bitcoin, and, and you know it's been around. At the moment, there are still a lot of debate on what the value added. Is it more a spe speculative asset or can it facilitate m mechanism of payment? But there's a whole element around the more traditional crypto asset in the sense of uh, decentralized mechanism. You don't have the intervention of central bank with the risk of speculation and sometimes anonymity. Then you have what we call the uh, stable coins, which are backed against traditional um, uh, money, I mean, to simplify. And, and this is really something where you can have the benefit of digital payment and at the same time not the risk of volatility of the asset, which has been one of the major problems with the Bitcoin and, and equivalent. And some of them are called global stable coins, which would be somehow a source of finance that you can use across the world. So a couple of years ago, you may remember, Facebook mentioned Libra as a way to do that. So in, the, in between, a lot of discussion are taking place with the regulators on how can it work. But I think that created the potential to think about that, and there is a lot of discussion at the moment on these global stablecoins. And then you have the new, uh, the, the, the current development on what is called central bank digital currency, where it's actually the public sector, the central banks, that then provide digital money to simplify, and therefore that allows a direct claim on the central bank. So you don't have private money, but public money. And, and that's a way, the equivalent of your dollar, but in your cell phone and issued by a central bank. So there is a lot of work going on at the moment with some central bank having already adopted this and others looking at it, thinking about it, creating pilots, etc. So the big question is, how can we then mobilize that for cross-border payment and integrate the system somehow? So you can have country A with a uh, CBDC, country B with CBDC, and instead of having to go through the whole system of financial institution and what we call cross-band and banking relationship, then you can make it interoperable directly. At least that's the potential going forward and some of the tests at the moment. So imagine with each intermediary taking their fee in the transaction, 
If suddenly you can reduce the number and directly transact, you don't have to wait. It reduces the cost. There is more transparency. So obviously that's going to be a bit more complicated than that. Did, but fundamentally, this is the discussion in front of us and what people are looking at and testing as we speak. So I want to move uh, a little to climate, uh, which is something that's you know really on our minds lately and with the recent COP26. What are the climate implications if we're seeing greater uptake of cryptocurrencies? It, it's a complicated discussion. I mean, as you know, there is that old discussion on the Bitcoin mining and the fact that it takes a lot of energy and therefore the net element um, in terms of climate impact is not totally clear. So some, uh, some partners have said that they actually find a way uh, to reduce the uh, energy footprint somehow of, uh, of uh, Bitcoin or equivalent. So this is an ongoing debate. Uh, and, and at the moment, from what I understand, the jury is still out as to whether it's possible to do it that way. Now, if you think about it, more digital money uh, generally. Uh, so at the moment, in most countries, if you want to open a bank account, you need to go to the bank. You need to take your car. You need to face people. Imagine that you can do that all remotely without having to travel, without having to take your car or the bus, etc. So I'm not sure that anyone has actually done the calculation of how to reduce the carbon footprint. But clearly, there is a potential there to reduce the physical transportation element as well as all the elements related to uh, keeping this in terms of real-world uh, paper and, and destruction of that paper, etc. So we are looking at that at the moment, and my colleagues working on payment system are trying to identify whether we can have a kind of assessment of the benefit, but clearly um, the ability to go digital and to reduce the um, physical face-to-face uh, -face as a benefit in terms of uh, carbon uh, footprint. And that, that mining, that consensus mechanism, is the, the, the part that brings apart brings about the, the climate footprint. Are there any other pitfalls with using? Did I, did I get that right? Or did I so you're, you're right on the Bitcoin because the production of it. If you go central bank digital currency, for instance, you don't have the equivalent because you don't need to mine. So it's just the issuance by the central bank of the virtual equivalent of your dollar or euro or whatever other currency in your pocket. So I think that's less the case. But for the uh, mining of Bitcoin, that's been one of the elements of concern on, on the carbon footprint and energy footprint. And, and beyond climate change, is there other pitfalls that, that people should be aware of when it comes to, to cryptocurrency? So one of the big, uh, one of the, so there are different uh, elements. One is data. So there is a huge potential because you have more data, more information, and therefore you can uh, have better uh, credit profile of the customers, for instance. So you have a couple of uh, uh, fintech uh, companies that are beginning to look at uh, patterns of consumption on how go people go online, and they are able to fine-tune your credit profile thanks to that. So that means potentially not just through the credit registry based on your past financial history, but your broader history, you will be able to fine tune more and probably in thanks to that, reduce the cost of finance for some people who don't have that history. Um, and, and therefore you can begin a credit history in much simpler way by looking at the rest. So the data usage is very fundamental as you see with what Amazon is doing to some extent. Now, the flip side of that is that, obviously, you are more exposed. People, people have more information about you. But there is an element around data governance and using data in ways that can really be beneficial. Linked to that is, obviously, privacy. I mean, all of us need to be concerned about potential cyber attacks on our banks because that information is super private. So you need to make sure that there is the environment on that. And then the last element is around integrity. And, and uh, so the abuse of the financial sector uh, for money laundering or things like that. 
So on the one hand, it's much easier to trace the transaction when you are in the digital world. And so you don't have people coming with a luggage of cash, etc. I mean, that's also part of the image that we have in mind. So traceability can be better. But sometimes the identification of who's behind a transaction in the first place is very complicated. So that's actually part of the discussion. On the one hand, to make sure that there is that knowledge and that information, and at the same time, not create impediment for people to be able to access. In most countries, people don't have ID. How do you open a transaction account without an ID? So we have ways to do that with our risk base. For small transactions, you actually don't need and make it easier for financial inclusion. When it gets more sophisticated, then you can ask for uh, identification. But then you would benefit because you have more trustability. And that, that trustability, that identity, those, those issues, I mean, that comes down to the architecture of the different currencies or the different assets. So that comes to the architecture of the different assets. So CBDC, there are lots of options in terms of design and the way that's designed. What's the role of the traditional banking sector? What's the role of the new service provider is fundamental. You need the infrastructure in terms of payment system and open payment system beyond the traditional players. And then digital ID is going to be absolutely essential. And what we see is that in the countries where there is a development of digital ID, it makes it easier uh, for even the most vulnerable to have access to the financial sector. Just one last question. As, as somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about these technologies, where do you see the most potential going forward? Uh, so, uh, first, uh, first and a matter of answer to your question, I'm not on the technology side, and I know the technology colleagues, including the Innovation Lab colleagues at the World Bank, love that because they see a lot of potential from a technological standpoint. I'm more on the financial sector angle, so what we are seeing is really a development of products and ability to transact that are completely different and are fundamentally transforming the financial system. And I think we are just beginning to understand the potential of that, potential in terms of opportunities, potential in terms of risk. I really think that cross-border payment is the next agenda, the next frontier. There's actually a huge work program that has been launched by the G20 and the Financial Stability Board. So really, the financial sector community is very mobilized, lots of potential, lots of opportunities. But this is something on which everybody's been trying to work for years, and we have not yet cracked that nut. And because of what we said earlier on remittances, that could have a major development impact in addition to facilitate trade, etc. But from a development perspective, that would really make a difference. Jean-Pem, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this this afternoon. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. That's it for this edition of the Development Podcast. As always, we would love your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email at thedevelopmentpodcast at worldbank.org. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.